Video Game The Movie The Podcast. Hello and welcome to Video Game The Movie The Podcast. I am your host, Nathan Bertram. I'm another host, Mackenzie Easton. I'm another another host, Lexi Conwell. Why do I always do the third one? <laughs> I don't know, because I get in there faster. <laughs> That's what I said. This week we have a special episode for you. We're jumping from movies based directly on video games to a movie that uses video games as its setting. Yes, today we're talking about the Disney classic, Wreck-It Ralph. I'm gonna wreck it! <laughs> so freakishly annoying. All right, ladies, the kitten whispers and tickle fights stop now. When did video games become so violent and scary? Are you a hobo? Listen, I try to be nice. I'm trying to be nice. You're mimicking You're me. mimicking me. That is rude, <laughs> and this I'm, conversation is I'm over. I get a good feeling, yeah. So, this is probably the best movie we've watched on the podcast, which is too bad because it's the only yeah. one we've talked about that isn't actually adapted from a video game. Yeah, you know, I think I have to agree with that. This movie actually had me in tears at various moments. Yes, this is a tearjerker, genuine, good, heartfelt. It's one of the, like, rebirth of the Disney Renaissance, or the new Disney Renaissance films that, like, brought Disney back to the level where, like, everybody's going to see their stuff and liking it again. Uh, although this movie gets mistaken for a Pixar movie a lot, and I really can't blame anybody because this is the most Pixar-y Disney movie that they've ever made. Was this the first yeah. one that came out after John Lasseter became the animation studio's head, or was that... 
Uh, I'm not a hundred on that. Uh, I know that he was at this point. Yes, but at this point he was in charge. Um, and it really does show in the both Pixar and DreamWorks, or not DreamWorks, both Pix- Pixar and Disney start blending into each other really hard at this point, where Wreck-It Ralph and Brave came out like really close to each other, and Brave is the movie you'd be like, Disney, and Wreck-It Ralph is the one where you're like, Pixar, but they're not, because the company's name stopped meaning anything. I'm gonna be honest, I thought Brave was a Disney movie until this very moment. Yeah, no, it's a very obvious, like, thing. And also, she's a technically a Disney princess. Anyways, this is really off topic. We're yeah. not talking about the sequel, we're talking about the first one. In the sequel, <laughs> we can talk about Disney princesses as much as we like, that's the rules. So, who wants to do a rundown of the plot? Uh, I can do it, if you'd like. Yeah, go or ahead, do Lex. you want it, Kenzie? So, Wreck-It Ralph is, follows, Wreck-It Ralph is set in an arcade uh, and not only an arcade, but the arcade consoles as following the video game characters. The main character is Wreck-It Ralph, a villain from the arcade game Fix-It Felix Jr., where he is ostracized. He's, he's not happy being a villain because he's living in the dump and smashes things and never gets a medal and no one really ever likes to interact with him. So in a Based on a kind of arbitrary, sarcastic quest giving from one of the rude little villager characters. <laughs> the mean uh, little pushy twat. Yeah. He sets off to go win a medal and bring it back so that they'll let him live in the penthouse or at least, you know, have some friends. So he goes and in into the other world, the, the other... He, he goes into another video game called Heroes Duty. Duty. Which, yes, duty. <laughs> That's a joke. It gets made in the movie incessantly. And which is basically a form. It's a. It's like a first kind of a shooter, Halo, aliens, knockoff kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you climb a tower and you kill some bugs. And you win a medal. And there, it's in really high definition because it's a brand new game. And Wreck-It Ralph is like 30 years old or something. And he ends up getting the medal. But when he gets out of the place, he actually also brings a single cybug with him, which serves as a major environmental dis- death and destruction Armageddon thing for another game. Because cybugs are effectively just a virus in the game. They don't even know that they're in the game. They get killed every time by a beacon when the game ends. Um, he ends up flying into Sugar Rush, and then from there we we meet Vanellope Von Schweetz and try to win her, get her to win the race and defeat the villain, King Candy, who's actually Turbo, who took over the game and save Vanellope and the entirety of Sugar Rush. Yes, so that is the general breakdown. It's a middle-aged crisis movie by way of video games um, (laughs) where two, like, outcasts become friends and find happiness in their lives. It's a good little thing, this movie. I was really dismissive. I love this movie. I saw this movie on opening weekend in high school and, like, we were all really jazzed to go watch it, and we stayed till the end credits where there's a Pac-Man Easter egg, and it's really exciting. <laughs> this game is the most video gamiest 
thing. It is who framed Roger Rabbit for video games. It's also got a lot of Toy Story to it in the way that they structure Ooh. the world and mm-hmm. they give all of the characters uh, motivations and perspectives that are very much consistent with the fact that they are video game characters. Yeah, that's one of the more important things about um, uh, about all the characters and how the story is told is that it the character motivations follow from the fact that they are video game characters and are not like secondary to that fact. Yeah. Uh, also, the games or the game, whatever. The movie starts off with a monologue from Ralph that turns out to be to basically an AA meeting, but for bad guys, uh, where he is shown in his game in like old school pixel animation, which is really cool. Like the pixel animation that they do isn't a major part of the movie, but whatever they do, it's really solid work, and it really mm-hmm. adds to the aesthetic. Even when they're doing their normal 3D animation, they translate aspects of the like pixel animation or whatever is part of the other characters to the to them. Mm-hmm. Um, their characters' designs are just a little bit... They're clearly different based on different games, although some of the main characters blend a little bit more together. Yeah, I know earlier in development on this film, they were planning on doing Felix and Ralph entirely in the same style as the Nicelanders. You know, the blocky, moving like it's mm. pixel animation style, but it was just d- infeasible for the main characters. It just yeah, that was unapproachable, and it would have just been way too much effort. <laughs> that makes sense. I also, dis- even though it's really well done, I despise the animation of the Nicelanders. Yeah, it's impressive, <laughs> but it's not nice to look at. It's- yeah. But I like that they did it. it. It's still very cool, and it distinguishes the characters as being from a different era in a way that works really nicely when you compare them to the fluid motion of the other like random side characters that exist throughout the other games that we visit Mm -hmm. it also only visits like there's only three games that are really important and then also they stop by pac-man and tappers uh yeah it's fun but i know a lot of people complained when the game first or the movie first (laughs) came out that there weren't enough games being explored and i i really disagree because you really need to focus or this this movie would just end up as like a really boring tour of like random 80s nostalgia like pixels or something (laughs) we'll have to talk about that eventually we're gonna have to watch that but not today not today pixels uh (laughs) One of the things that I I really enjoy about the bad anon meeting is just all of the all of the different villains that they've chosen. They've included like Bowser and something that's clearly supposed to be like Mother Brain and Clyde specifically. Uh, sorry, Clyde is the orange Pac-Man ghost. They each have names. It's Inky, Binky, Pinky, and Clyde. Gotcha. Clyde is the orange one. He's the one who is programmed to just do random stuff. <laughs> He's the worst one. Huh, interesting. Uh, I don't know why I know this, I just do. <laughs> There's also Bowser. Bowser's there. There's the zombies from uh, House of the Dead games. One of those is there. Also Zangief, who is not a villain. <laughs> yeah, I love Zangief I mean, in that Traditionally, sequence. in the Street Fighter games, he is... Kind of? Kind of. But anyways, I love Zangief, he's a good boy. Yeah. I love Satan. There's also Satan. Satine. Satine. Yeah. And that's one of the other things. I'm going to bring this up now, and I'll probably make like a bigger essay-style point of it at the end. Uh, both of the protagonists of this movie are like 
queer coded, but not in the yes. like bad Disney way where they queer code the villains. Like more like Elsa or other like characters in the Disney canon, like Mulan, where especially because in this movie they don't have romantic interests. Vanellope mm-hmm. and Ralph both really, if you want to look at it from that angle, read as queer characters who are facing ostracization in part due to their queerness. Yeah. Also, uh, Turbo or King Candy. It was also heavily queer coded. A little bit. Um, it's less so when he's Turbo and more so when he's King Candy. Like it's a facade, yeah. which is interesting. But I th- that's true. I do think, at least in this one, the protagonists also can be read in that light, and so it makes it mm-hmm. a lot less hashtag problematic. Yeah, I think I think they can also be viewed through a like. I don't know if this is quite the right thing, but like a disability lens or something. Well, certainly um, a Vanellope, uh, and yeah. they really push on that in the sequel, actually. Vanellope, clearly, her glitching is framed somewhat through a lens of disability and somewhat through a lens of like like an anxiety or an ADHD kind of thing, where she can't quite yeah. focus in the same way as other people, and it certainly acts up more when she's upset. Which is really mm. interesting, and it's not framed by the end as like a thing she needs to get rid of, but like a part of her that makes her special, and that's really nice. And this is well before they try to touch back on this in Pixar with um, Finding Dory, which I think kind of does the same thing, but really clumsily. I haven't seen it. Uh, the yet. basic gist of Finding Dory is there's a lot of other random disabled fish at the facility that she was like raised in and her accepting her short-term memory loss as like a part of her personality like saves the day at the end it's just it's well-intentioned i just don't know whether it works 110 percent. nathan do you have thinks about thinks thinky thinks thinks about things oh the things you can think (laughs) uh i will say i really appreciate how this movie manages to find very creative ways around exposition we talked mm. about the uh, like bad anon meeting at the beginning, where we get this dump of all the background information on the arcade and the characters and Ralph, but it's done through this in-universe. There is this good explanation for why he would be saying all of this, and then later uh, we get some uh, <laughs> like narrative elements that are set up through the tutorial of the first-person shooter game, Heroes Duty, where yeah. Ralph has infiltrated this game to try and get his medal, and we're hearing the uh, commander deliver the tutorial to the first-person camera that is <laughs> being operated by someone in the arcade, and it's setting up these elements that get paid off at the end of the movie with the cybugs and the beacon and all of that. And it's just really neat that they did that, like from a narrative structure standpoint, to find these ways to slip the exposition in that makes sense in the universe. And especially, is with, cool. especially with the Heroes Duty one, where they're clearly like paying attention to how video games work and seeing how they can use that to their advantage in storytelling. Yeah. Uh, there is an opposite case, though, with the King Candy announcing the race to become one of the roster characters, where he says, literally, as you all know, <laughs> like, yeah, they do know. Why didn't you just say we have like a representative from the Whack-A-Mole or something visiting? So I have to explain this like two lines and a new mo- model of a different character would explain away that entire exposition problem. <laughs> 
Anyways, yeah. very minor nitpick there. Uh, there was oh. there was another one that really stood out to me that was an advertisement by Sonic the Hedgehog. Yes, about if you die outside of your game, you die forever. It's, <laughs> it's like <laughs> public safety announcement, Sonic, yeah. which was a thing in the nineties that they had him oh. do like service announcement at the end of some of his cartoons. Because, you know, it was a very popular character. So I think they're riffing That's on that a little. That. Yeah. Okay, because I thought it was really weird otherwise. I mean, I think it's that same voice actor from the 90s who played, like, Urkel. Like also, I mean, Sonic is probably the biggest character that they have who says anything, right? Like... Oh, like... Outside of... Licensed ones? Yeah, licensed ones. Outside of the main characters. Yeah, I think he's the only main character that has any speaking lines. Yeah, I mean Zangief. From a different video game. Zangief, but he's like, the, the main characters, if there is any, in Street Fighter is uh, Ryu and Ken. Who do get two lines of dialogue at the very oh, beginning right. of the movie. <laughs> yeah, they do, I forgot about yeah. that. Or they go off to get beers, which is fun. Uh, also, it's Tappers, uh, which... There is root beer tapper, but the, like, case on the outside is clearly a normal tapper's, so they're just, like, towing the line of having alcohol in the movie. It's really unclear. Yeah. Uh, also, I don't want to get into the weeds on this, because the movie makes you not really think about it that much, but there is an implied, like, biological component to these characters where they do need to yeah. eat and sleep and use the washroom in order to function correctly, but they don't- Yeah. Actually, they don't need to sleep. They don't ever sleep, but they do seem to need to eat. I mean, we do see the um, the dwarf gnome guy that's guarding the bakery in uh, Sugar Rush it seems sleeping like they, at the gate. It seems like they oh, can right. sleep. Yeah, but they don't seem to need... Well, yeah, because they, they come out of the games, like, of their own games at night when the arcade is closed. Yeah. And that's when they do all of their stuff. Oh, also, watching this movie they, was, like, super uncomfortable the first ten minutes when we had finally gotten around to watching Food Fight, because Food Fight is, like, got a very similar opening vibe, and it's really uncomfortable because Food Fight is so bad that it taints everything <laughs> that looks even kind of like it. Anyways, Luxie, you were going to say something. Well, on the topic of the, like, biological component, when there, when you look at... Like, okay, so let's say you're, it's Wreck-It Ralph. When you look at the game from outside, they're obviously pixels and, like, 2D. But when they're inside the game, they seem to have mass, mm -hmm. an, at least enough mass to knock a poster that is taped to the screen off of the cabinet. Yeah, that is the big moment where if you're going to get weird and nitpicky about the mechanics of this, which I really kind of wish we wouldn't, but I'm going to finish off this thought anyways... Where, like, Ralph physically interacts with the real world, like, in a, like, physical way, and therefore solves the plot of the movie. Because it couldn't just be a coincidence, because that would have felt really contrived. But mm -hmm. it kind of breaks the rules of the universe a little bit. It's a bit, yeah. it's a bit weird. It's not important. It's just a little bit weird when you think too hard about it. Yeah, I... Think, I want to think a little bit too hard about this for one more point. Okay, go for it. Are there other Wreck-It Ralphs out there? I mean, the implication the is same? yes. Presumably, yeah. Like, Wreck-It Ralph 2 has many more of these questions, and I feel like that's the point where we really need to hunker down and like deep dive into what's wrong with this universe, because that one introduces the internet. Um, 
<laughs> but in the meanwhile, I think this universe works actually quite well. It's got similar yeah. amounts of issues as Toy Story, and people it's, give those a pass. I was going to say, if we're following Toy Story rules, then yes, there would be, because they go out of their way in Toy Story 2 to address the fact that there are dozens of Buzz Lightyear's on store shelves that all come to life in the store. But I think the problem with right. Wreck-It Ralph and Toy Story comparison there is that Wreck-It Ralph is a 30-plus-year-old like arcade game, and within the universe of the first Wreck-It Ralph movie, we have no conf- confirmation on whether or not it's a relatively popular one, or if it's just that this one guy kept this one game around because he liked it. Well, it seemed like they did say that it was a really popular game, which was why it was around for so long, even though it started to fade in popularity in the last few years until they, the end of the movie. Yes, but is it popular in the sense of like this one arcade or popular worldwide? Because well, that's a big difference. I think the sequel answers that question. Because it does. But... He becomes a viral video sensation. Ralph okay, becomes well, a viral video let's sensation. Let's stop talking about this. And sequel. people start referencing the game for like people all over the world start talking about yeah. the game. Yeah, as I, if they know about it. I mean, let's let's just focus on the first okay. movie because uh, yeah. this is getting a little let's, bit. Let's, we're getting in the weeds here. Let's ignore. Okay, it. let's <laughs> let's reset. What was everybody's favorite like little video game character cameo or joke? I am very fond of the graffiti in the station. Yes. Uh, there are a number of really good Easter eggs there. Uh, there's Shang Long was here is one of them, which is a oh. a joke about a Street Fighter, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. a Street Fighter reference. There's a mistranslation in one of like the early English arcade versions of Street Fighter where the characters have a phrase that they say at the end of a match if that character won the match and there's a mistranslation in one of Ryu's things where he says you have to overcome Shang Long if you want to defeat him but the actual phrase should be like you have to defeat my dragon punch it's he's referring to his special move but it wasn't translated right so people thought there was a character named Shang Long in the game. <laughs> so there's that. And then there's also on one wall, there is Aerith Lives, which is a reference to Final Fantasy VII, which is great. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Gotcha. Spoiler That's alert funny. for Final Fantasy VII. Sorry if you've been waiting for those remakes <laughs> to learn the story. Uh, this is another point, though, where the rules of the world get a little bit, like, weird. What? arcade game is sonic coming from where are they learning Mm. about Aerith? because these are console games like hand like home console games and they're clearly interacting with like all video game canon and they don't have the internet at this point i think they can just hear what people are saying outside of the cabinets so maybe that's just how they pick up on literally all other culture (laughs) like just like whatever teenagers talk about at the arcade that is the only thing that they know about if, if if your only world is a cave and there are shadows in the wall. <laughs> Plato's allegory of the cave, but with Wreck-It Ralph characters. <laughs> Ralph's allegory of the arcade. Let's get back on track a little bit. We're, we're not keeping very good track this time. Just because I think it's a good movie and there's less to like do in the plot-by-plot breakdown when it's good. Yeah. Uh, and we don't d- go as deep on analysis yet as I feel like we eventually should be. Lexi, did you have a favorite Easter egg? I mean, I'm not familiar with a lot of the references that they were making, Fair. which made it hard, but I did like some of the structural things that they just had with the video games in general, but that's more of a 
world building I mean, like, thing that's just throughout the movie. Totally elaborate that on that if you want. I, I prefer deeper <laughs> things than Easter eggs. Okay, like, um, I mean, I, oh, okay, actually, my I do have Easter eggs, okay. but um, and it's during the credits when they you when they actually point out kind of what the games that they're the the made up games that they're doing are referencing um like they have hero's duty as doom mm-hmm. they they just have a doom reskin in the credits um and they're doing like wreck it ralph is a little bit like um donkey kong and they do make some Mario references, and I by the end of the movie, it's just so many iconic things that I I mean I didn't even know what to do with all of it because I was just <laughs> swimming in references. That is totally fair. Uh, I I don't know if I could pick a favorite. I just kind of love I just kind of love this movie, and it's just swimming with references, as you said. I want to talk about the characters though, because I feel like that's where we can really get into the meat of this thing. There are four main characters to this movie. Uh, and let's start on someone we haven't mentioned at all, actually. Let's start with the actual protagonist of the game that Wreck-It Ralph is from, Fix-It Felix Jr. of Fix-It Felix Jr. <laughs> uh, Nathan, do you have any thoughts on Fix-It Felix Jr. as a character and performance and whatnot? His role in this film? Uh, yeah, sure. So Fix-It Felix Jr. is voiced by Jack McBrayer of uh, 30 Rock fame, and he is doing a really great performance here as this um he kind of represents the status quo of the the games as the hero he's the one who gets all of the praise he is the one who fixes all of the damage that ralph does and as such he doesn't seem to recognize the way in which being treated like a villain is so damaging to wreck it ralph like as a person Mm-hmm. So when like these disputes come up between Ralph and the rest of the Nicelanders, he ends up kind of caught in the middle and doesn't really know how to solve it. Yeah, for a hero, he's very passive. He just kind of does mm. what is told and expected of him. <laughs> he's kind of a prototypical nice guy in a, like, a lot of much. ways yeah. where he just doesn't... He's very emblematic of privilege, Mm -hmm. which is even Mm -hmm. brought up in that opening narration where Ralph talks about how everything is easy if you have a magic hammer given to you by your father that fixes things. Yeah, he doesn't have any, necessarily any demonstrable skills until like later through the movie. He just has everything given to him and doesn't really think to question anything until he's forced to. He's not a bad person. He's just kind of uninterested in exploring anything and just very content with the way his life is mm-hmm. until that is oh wait no actually do you have anything to say about felix <laughs> no not really other than he's aggressively polite <laughs> yeah. he's, he's also the most canadian character in this movie <laughs> he is painfully polite he comes off as like I don't know, like, some kind of stereotype from the 50s, despite being from an 80s game. Mm-hmm. He's a, he's a weird little guy. Also, he's just, like, so much shorter than all of the rest of the main adult cast, which is kind of hilarious. Yeah. His his character design is great. He is obviously a bit of a Mario knockoff, but without feeling Definitely. too derivative, I think. I mean, he probably would feel really derivative if he wasn't wearing blue and was wearing red <laughs> instead. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll give them a pass. 
uh, on that one. He's, yeah, he's a very passive character until he meets Calhoun, who I want to talk about next because she's amazing and I love her. Yeah, no, she's wonderful. Uh, Calhoun, voiced by Jane Lynch of Glee Glee and other things. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love Jane Lynch. Jane Lynch is a badass and I love her. And her performance is amazing in this, and she gets all of the best one-liners, and mm. Calhoun is my favorite Disney princess now. <laughs> Wait, is she technically a Disney princess? Oh, no, nobody no. is in this movie. Okay. Not even Vanellope well, is. No, Vanellope reaches all the criteria, but doesn't get officially connected into the canon, which I kind of expected oh. them to do after the sequel, but we'll get on to that some other time. Okay. Okay. Lexi, do you have thoughts on Calhoun? Ah, uh, Sergeant... Sorry. Sergeant Tamara Jean Calhoun (laughs) is incredible. She's the, I mean, she kind of looks like Jane Lynch a little bit in character design. Like the the kind of silvery blonde hair, um, but a bit more anime. (laughs) She is definitely. (laughs) She's the most Overwatchy character in this movie. And this game came out, or this movie came out like years before Overwatch, but you could see Calhoun in the cast of Overwatch and not really blink an eye about it. You're totally right. She is so edgy and sad and like on on the here for the like duty of I've got to slay cybugs and nothing can stand in my way and you're all going to die because there's no beacon. We're all dead. <laughs> Dark and edgy pulls out a gun from her, a mini gun from her wedding dress be- during her backstory which is purposefully programmed to be incredibly sad where her husband is eaten by a cyborg on the day of her wedding on the one time she didn't do a perimeter check <laughs> yeah she's got pre-programmed ptsd and she's actually i mean she's awesome on every level but i really do appreciate how actually like that scene is a joke the like her backstory is the most sad thing ever is a joke but then they treat her trauma pretty seriously throughout the rest of the movie like she has a horrible flashback sequence abandons felix for a while and then like (laughs) felix is like apologetic and doesn't bring it up again and isn't like offended that she was upset just like confused and doesn't want to hurt her again which is nice it's nice that people take her trigger seriously even though her trigger yeah. is an objectively dumb phrase <laughs> you're a dynamite gal yeah dynamite dynamite they, gal <laughs> dynamite gal man they throw around a lot of techno babble at least from her oh yeah she also um, has a lot of almost swearing yeah oh yeah i mean so does ralph but she's the she takes the cake for it i am Pretty convinced like, that Bull Roar was something that was more like bullshit earlier, and they had to change it because it was too close. Yeah, no, you're, yeah. I think the the one that toes the line the most is, all right, Pussy Willows, oh, get back yeah. to the starting positions. Uh, Calhoun uh, is amazing. Anyways, Lexi, it seems like you wanted to say something about the techno babble. Oh, not, I, not really more than what we've said. It was kind of just part of her, like, swearing and spouting technological stuff. Because, like, she's riding, like, a hoverboard <laughs> and, and has a sci-fi rifle that unfolds. And she's just do- riding this thing, firing at a horde of horrible green bugs that in in the middle of a candy land of racing 
I just I I love the the the, the, clash. the cross there the clash the aesthetic yeah. <laughs> so Calhoun and Felix together are an interesting. They have their own side plot, and it is the heterosexual love plot that allows for Ralph and Penelope to come off as queer as they do. Honestly, because they yeah. just shuffle all of the straight people romance into these two characters, and it's a surprisingly cute relationship. After you get past the initial, like, kind of forced bit of it, because it, mm-hmm. it, it comes across as heavy-handed, but they do so in-universe, making it yeah. heavy-handed with these, like, taffy things singing, and like, this ariotic thing, and, and heart shapes, and once they realize this is happening, she just pulls out her pistol. Yeah, she only <laughs> likes Felix once he actually does stuff to be useful. Yeah. And helpful. And stops being kind of whiny. Uh, yeah, they have this entire side plot that essentially just exists to remind the audience every now and then that there are stakes to the situation besides Ralph not being happy. Mm-hmm. That there is a threat that is potentially being caused by Ralph's actions here. And I think it functions really well, not only to do that, but to like build out the world a little bit more. And it helps in certain exposition sections. Do you have any thoughts on... Uh, the Felix Calhoun dyad. <laughs> I mean, I think they're great. There's also this kind of a clash between like the old guard of video games and the new guard, where Calhoun is this high definition first person shooter, and Fix It Felix is this like doddering like thirty year old <laughs> platformer, and just the the gulf between the way that they talk and move is is mm. very visible. But they they do seem to work well together, which is. I don't know, kind of a nice sentiment in the end that these two mm-hmm. things don't have to be divorced from one another and one doesn't supersede the other. They can coexist harmoniously and then yeah. get married in an identical ceremony to the one that she was going to get married in before, which is kind of troubling, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this time with more guns. This time with more guns. <laughs> yep. Uh, and that's the one shot of the like crowd of the wedding where one side has everybody has guns and the other side is just nice landers looking terrified is a very good <laughs> shot. It reminds me of a similar shot in Up where uh, they go to Carl and Ellie's wedding and Ellie's side of the family is like shooting guns and everybody's like hollering and then Fred or Carl's side of the wedding is just like confused stuffy white people. <laughs> I, I like a dichotomy in a wedding. So anyway, <laughs> let's not talk about our wedding. Let's talk about the actual main characters now. Uh, we're going all the way up to Wreck-It Ralph here. Let's go to... Uh, actually, let's talk about the villain, because we haven't done that yet. King Candy slash Turbo. Voiced by Alan Tudyk. Alan of... Tudyk, Disney's good luck charm. Yeah, Hang on, what famously... was that last name? Tudyk? Of, uh... Got- Yes, T U D Y K. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, famously of Firefly, he played Wash on Ooh. Firefly. He's basically in everything that Joss Whedon has ever made, except the MCU stuff. Uh, now Ooh. he is Disney's good luck charm, much like um, John Ratzenberger. John was Ratzenberger for Pixar. for Pixar. Yes, he's also made his way into Star Wars more recently. He <laughs> yes. was K two S O in uh, Rogue One. That's cool. Uh, yeah, he's a phenomenally talented voice actor. Uh, his role here, he's through most of the movie channeling uh, Ed Wynn from mm-hmm. uh, Disney's Alice in Wonderland, who played the Mad Hatter. Mm, um, yeah. I think a lot of the design for King Candy was intentionally uh, drawing from that. It makes I think him... a lot of Candy Rush in general. Yeah. Well, Sugar yeah. Rush is 
the game that Penelope is from is a like a Japanese style kart racer with a Candyland spin, like thematically. It is aesthetically all candy stuff, but it's also got this very heavy anime flavoring to it, where in the Japanese version, they even like created a separate character based on a Japanese candy and inserted her into the film in several shots. Oh, cool. um, uh, I can't remember what her name is, but like she was like a mint Pocky character. Uh, she takes the place of mint Zaki a couple times. But King Candy very notably looks more like he's from a Western tradition than an anime tradition. Mm-hmm. He seems mm. much more old style Disney than he does anime, which I think is intentional. I think they tried to make him fit in if you don't think too hard about it, but be noticeably weird once you do. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah, King Candy is the start of Disney's, not only start Disney's fascination with Alan Tudyk, but the start of their obsession with twist villains. Uh, tw- twist villain in a different way for this case, and in a much more effective way. So throughout the movie, they are concerned with the concept of somebody, specifically Ralph, going turbo. This is just brought up over and over again without being explained, which is really kind of ballsy for a kid's movie. Usually the first time somebody says an unfamiliar phrase, everything would stop to explain what they were talking about. But that Mm. doesn't happen until like almost two thirds of the way through the movie Mm -hmm. where it is explained pretty reasonably to Calhoun because her game was only recently plugged in. Yeah. They don't know what going turbo means well and the first time it's brought up is in the opening scene in the badanon meeting where m bison asks ralph (laughs) if he's going turbo and he assures them that he's not he's just not happy with his game Mm -hmm. so growing turbo as a concept is something that developed within just this one arcade when the mascot of a very popular or a formerly very popular racing game turbo time left his game and crashed another one causing both of the games to be unplugged because he was jealous of its success and this is mentioned repeatedly up until the point it's explained and then repeatedly after the fact because they think ralph is planning on doing this and it's obviously a huge taboo and then reasonably (laughs) reasonably obviously for a good reason a huge taboo uh that you're not supposed to go into other people's games during daylight hours because you could break stuff people are constantly worried about this problem there is a clear rising homelessness problem in this arcade where games keep getting unplugged and there's not any extra space to put people Yes, the Qbert characters are living Oof. in Game Central Station because their game got unplugged. Yeah. And they're like begging for food outside of other games. And this listening to this is giving them a job at the end of the like yeah. game. Or at the end of the movie. I keep calling this movie a game. It's just very <laughs> gaming and my brain just keeps going there. Anyways, Turbo so, yes. didn't actually get destroyed with the games, it turns out by the end, but has been waiting in secret for like an unknown period of time, probably somewhere near 30 years, to, like, plan the takeover of a different racing game by recoding the whole thing so that he is now not only the most important character, but the actual king of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Very yeah. intense villain plan. But the thing that I think makes it work as a twist villain is not just that the whole concept of going turbo is set up previously and has purpose outside of this twist, 
like it's important to the world building and important to understanding why people are so freaking freaked out about Ralph doing what he's doing. But it's also that King Candy is suspicious throughout the whole movie. It's not like Calhoun or what? Not Calhoun. It's not like the villains in some of the later Disney movies where they completely come out of nowhere like Prince Hans. He's Mm. always an antagonistic force. We just don't know to what extent he is until later. And I think that works really well. Yeah, they... I noticed some foreshadowing with him. Things that he said. Mm -hmm. Uh, Trying to read what I wrote. He reacts really weirdly uh, when Ralph comes Mm -hmm. into his game. He asks him if he's going turbo like everybody else does, but then he gets incredibly defensive about his game in a way that nobody else does. Almost everybody else when turbo, when going turbo is mentioned, reacts with like shock and horror. But when King Candy accuses Ralph of going turbo, it's with like kind of a an edge that's more angry and defensive mm-hmm. and it's a subtle moment and it passes quickly but like if you catch it 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 fits yeah there's a number of those where he he does things that are slightly off and it only becomes really clear that something is really off about him when he starts messing with the code because it becomes incredibly clear at that point that he was lying to Ralph about how the game operated and what he could and could not get him because mm-hmm. he could have gotten him the medal it's obvious because he gets it himself so you know at that point that dude's shady is i'll get out which is necessary because otherwise the like heartbreaking moment with the smashing of the cart wouldn't work as much because you would kind of be on ralph's side where you really shouldn't be and you aren't at this point you know that he's doing right. something dumb and we've seen vanilla it's when he's in the code that we see vanellope's code separated from the core of the game Mm -hmm. Uh, just kind of floating out in space that's a really good moment of visual storytelling uh, Mm. because nobody stops to explain what's happening really uh king candy like says that this is the code and then he goes in and he moves things around to get the metal out of the code and then leaves this like void where the code exists and then off to the side as he's floating out of this room is just this disconnected piece of code with Penelope's name on it. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't the movie doesn't stop to explain that. It just shows it and that's really nice. This movie yeah. gives people credit. It assumes that you're intelligent enough to follow what's going on, which I appreciate, especially for kids movies cuz they're they, they tend to be like on average a lot worse for like really hammering all the details mm-hmm. into the into the audience. Uh speaking of foreshadowing, one of the best and earliest pieces of foreshadowing in this movie that I noticed this time and hadn't noticed before. In the very opening scene, when they are showing the change of arcade cabinets over the years, and it shows Sugar Rush, it shows you the side of Sugar Rush with Vanellope on the cabinet oh. in the very earliest shots in this movie. Mm-hmm. I missed that. Yeah, it's really easy to miss. It happens very quickly. But it is planted from the very beginning of the game that Vanellope is there, important... <laughs> And, like, belongs there mm-hmm. very subtly by doing this visual thing. So I appreciate that. And I think that's a good segue into talking about Vanellope von Schweetz, princess or president. <laughs> Vanellope von Schweetz, voiced by comedian Sarah Silverman, who is absolutely adorable in this movie. Uh, mm-hmm. She is the vagrant 
rogue <laughs> racer in Sugar Rush who is trying desperately to get into the roster race, which happens every night because this is a game where uh, every day the set of racers that you can choose to play with is different. So the, the movie envisions how this is done by a roster race that happens every night where player racers in the game will pay a coin to enter the race and then the top set of racers get to be on the roster the next day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Vanellope's only dream is to be a racer. She's a tiny little homeless lady. Yes. <laughs> She's got candy in her hair. Yeah. She's a messy brat. Yeah. Yes. Vanellope is a snarky, kind of annoying, but really lovable child character uh th- which is really really hard to pull off in a way that is not just annoying she's not mm-hmm. coda from brother bear she is mm-hmm. actually likable <laughs> yeah i think it helps that ralph is also kind of an obnoxious character yeah they're both kind so of assholes sort of balance each other out see that's a thing they, their banter is lovely it's so good one of the things that is similar to toy story is that all characters involved are kind of dicks yeah, to one degree or another. <laughs> to one degree or another, <laughs> the main characters are not great people all of the time. And that is good because they don't have to be perfect to be interesting. And it's better if they're not so that they can have something resembling an arc. Yeah. So, uh, Lexi, do you have any thoughts on Vanellope, the cutest character in the whole movie? Vanellope von Schweetz is the perfect being. <laughs> <laughs> I've been in love with her aesthetic since the movie came out um did this movie come out like 20 uh 2012 okay i was gonna say 2012 okay yeah um just like the little skirt and the the green hoodie it i ah, it's good but uh, i don't know she her banter is amazing she's always just flitting around calling people names but in a endearing way particularly ralph she expresses affection in a kind of jerky way yeah um it's an acquired taste yeah, it, it, he, he's not a fan of it at the beginning, but by the end of the movie, they're just like throwing insults at each other as they leave, as their goodbye, and it's adorable. The big twist with Vanellope is that she is secretly the princess of the whole video game. Uh, and there is a little bit of foreshadowing for this. Obviously, the box on a uh, cover of the her art being on the like box for the game outside in the real world but mm. also every other character is like very very specifically themed to like one thing and Vanellope and King Candy are the only ones that aren't mm-hmm. oh, King, yeah. King Candy is very general and Vanellope is just Vanellope like she's got yeah. candy in her hair she's candy themed but she's not even she's, her car yeah, is she's, like literally just a mess mm-hmm. it's an amazing mess it's beautiful but it is literally just all the things falling on top of a pile which mm-hmm. makes sense if you're the princess of the candy kingdom you yeah. wouldn't have a specific one theming item she's not candlehead yeah <laughs> <laughs> or minty zaki oh. or francis <laughs> fledger butter hang on is candlehead just like a world of warcraft kobold Deep down in her soul, yes, but she just is stuck in this horrible racing game forever. (laughs) One of the interesting things about Vanellope is that a lot of her identity is tied up, the way that others identify her is tied up in the fact that she is a glitch, that Mm. she is, uh, as far as they're concerned, she doesn't belong in the game, and this manifests itself 
uh, as a side effect of her code being disconnected is that she she will physically like kind of separate into code and then reform and she doesn't really have any way to control this so it results in like when she's upset when she's emotionally agitated she will like kind of teleport short distances around uncontrollably um and this uh is treated kind of is coded kind of like disability like mm-hmm. we talked about earlier uh which is a really interesting angle that this movie takes with one of its main characters yeah especially since it does react so much with her emotions and she does eventually gain some control over it an ability to harness this thing that is core to who she is at this point and like not only accept it but use it to her advantage which i like that it's not just something she has to get rid of it's something Mm -hmm. that she can own and that can be good and to the movie's credit they don't take that away at the end of the movie like when she gets restored to being the princess of of sugar rush she doesn't lose her status as being a glitch it's just something that is now more fully integrated into her personality Mm -hmm. yeah so her glitchiness is a very interesting like angle to look at it i've seen it compared to a lot of things it's certainly one of the things that built on really nicely in the sequel too which i look forward to talking about eventually Mm -hmm. um i don't know i really like vanellope she's i really do wish she was actually one of the official disney princesses I think she fits the canon just about as well as Mulan. <laughs> she certainly has the one of the Disney princesses that has the most personality. Mm-hmm. Like she's just so exuberant and like childishly obnoxious in such an endearing <laughs> way. And just herself. Yeah. yeah. She's just unabashedly herself. And everyone who was ever mean to me shall be, be executed. executed. And it's important that she's an outcast in a similar way to ralph to make that relationship work mm-hmm. but also the scenes where she's getting picked on hurt me on a very personal level yeah it yeah just, it just hits that part of your heart from when you were a bullied kid yeah which i think applies to basically everyone here but uh, uh, side note the leader of the essentially the mean girls that pick on her <laughs> is voiced by mindy kaling and she is just pitch perfect as this just taffeta mutton fudge yeah yeah she's just the bitchiest yeah <laughs> she later goes on to voice disgust in uh inside out where she uses that same oh. bitchiness for like slightly less evil purposes yeah, I I knew I recognized her from something. Yeah, she's also in uh, Parks and Rec, right? Uh, or The Office? Um, she's in one of those Michael Schur works, one of the early ones. It's The Office, I think. Okay, yeah. The Office. I knew she was in one of those. The two shows are pretty similar. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on to the big man himself, nine feet tall. 615 pounds with really big hands. It's Wreck-It Ralph. <laughs> He's got yaoi hands, unfortunately. He does have yaoi hands. Wreck-It Ralph, voiced uh. by comedian and actor John C. Riley, uh, most famous for working with Will Ferrell in a mm. lot of their stuff. Um, most recently, I guess, Holmes and Watson was their last uh, <laughs> endeavor together. Okay, but he's also been recently making an interesting dramatic turn and played an excellent job in The Sisters Brothers. Yes, I think he's also pretty involved in like production and some writing stuff now. Anyways, really um, very true at this yeah, point. He's, he's done yeah. a lot. This uh, is an amazing voice performance. This is, yeah. He's got this great 
a mixture of like bravado and vulnerability that comes through in some of the quieter moments of the movie. Like he's this aggressive, angry force, but then he also has these moments where he just just heartbreaking. He's a very sad person who doesn't have any idea what to do with himself and doesn't really know whether or not he has the right to be sad about the thing. Yeah. Which is interesting. He has obviously been feeling this way for a very long time, and it has taken 30 years for him to try to even begin to get any help for it. He's not a very healthily-minded individual. Oh, I also, I noted at one point, there's a, um, when the record, or when the Fix-It Felix machine is marked as being out of order, uh, Felix makes a comment about how Ralph probably just fell asleep in the bathroom at Tapper's again. Yeah. Which is kind of coding him as being at least somewhat alcoholic. Yeah, he's very friendly with the barkeep. Yeah, he, he's yeah. like on a first name basis with the bartender at Tapper's. Tapper. <laughs> Tapper, yeah. Tapper, yeah. bartender at Tapper's. <laughs> I don't know if he has... Anyways. Anyway. This is very secondary. Ralph has issues at the beginning yes. of this movie, but you are thoroughly on his side because you recognize that he has actually done nothing wrong. He's just doing his job, which is break things. That's yeah, he's, his entire character design. It's in his code. Yeah. Uh, there's this moral throughout of both being what you are and learning to do what you have to do in a way that is more satisfying. Mm -hmm. Penelope is the princess of the kingdom, but doesn't have to do the princessy stuff. She just wants to race. And Ralph has to break the stuff in the game, but he doesn't have to be a social outcast. He can have friends. Yeah. So there's this line between accepting what you are and making yourself miserable by trying to fit into a box that you don't have to fit into, which I think is done better here than in, say... Monsters University, which has a very similar moral. This is turning very much into a me talking about Disney Pixar movies podcast, <laughs> not so much a video game thing, but I just like this movie and I think it's really interesting in the context of animated movies, as well as video game stuff, because again, yeah, it's the best video game related thing we've covered. I wonder if that's because it is original mm -hmm. rather than... Like, it's using all the tropes, but it's not actually based... It's not trying to reinterpret something. That is something that in my reading about this movie I came across that like very early on the they were considering doing like using a pre-existing franchise to like as the main characters and they realized that there was no way that they could really do that and still achieved the kind of uh like narrative detours that they needed to without like making people mad that they were doing mm. this to this existing set of characters mm -hmm. so they came to the conclusion that they had to invent a new game to make these characters and then through them explore these things they wanted to explore yeah it does seem like unless you are going to be really ballsy with the franchise doing something like this that is not explicitly a adaptation of their actual plot, treating them as a character that has a day job, is pretty tricky. I would mm -hmm. say that it's not necessarily impossible, but I mean, even in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which I think is one of the more comparable films here, the main cartoon character they use is made up, as is Jessica Rabbit. There are 
characters that are like very much like the video game characters exist and are themselves in their like cartoons, but it's a day job for them and they have other stuff they have going on. But you didn't focus on it wasn't about Donald Duck almost getting shot because that wouldn't have worked. (laughs) (laughs) He has children. (laughs) No, he doesn't. He has nephews. Oh, (laughs) anyways, this was your Donald Duck fact for the day. (laughs) But the, the fact that it is not a straight adaptation of a video game story helps it a lot. And that they have their own characters and that they can kind of go wild with it while still like drawing clear inspiration from how video games function and the types of characters that exist within them for their story. The like video game coding on this doesn't feel arbitrary. It doesn't feel like they just wanted to tell a story about like a grumpy old man befriending a young girl and they decided <laughs> to just put it in a video game. It feels like it came from what it, what are the inner lives of our current characters like and it went on for there and i think that deserves putting it as having it focused on our show for at least an episode and talking about it Mm -hmm. do we want to jump into fun facts or do we want to talk about the way it uses video games or do you think we've covered all of that uh fun facts and then if we talk about other things we talk about other things yeah i like having nathan's fun fact video game corner (laughs) so uh when do you guys think this movie was first conceived. Oh. Well, when a mommy director and a daddy director uh. love each other. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Uh, Be- based on... Sorry, go ahead. No, Lexi, you go. Based on the fact that you're asking the question, I want to say, like, over ten years before it was released. Yeah, from my history... Or, like, history, even fifteen. From my knowledge of the history of the Disney company, occasionally they just do that. And mm-hmm. also... In the era we're talking about, which is right before, like, they took off again with Tangled and stuff, they were digging into a lot of older concepts and finishing them off. Like, Frozen was in development heck for, like, 12 years until they made it. So, like, Hmm. I don't know, maybe it was a pitch that they got in the, like, late 90s? Yeah. The original concepts for Wreck-It Ralph were actually developed at Disney in the late 1980s. Jeez. Yeah, when arcades were still relevant. Which is yeah. wild. They were I mean, working on this movie. I mean, it does make mm-hmm. sense, but I kind of didn't expect them to have that much cultural edge. I mean, I guess these are the people yeah. who made Tron, so. Mm. Uh, they were developing it under the working title High Score, and yeah. then it got yeah. redeveloped and rebranded a few times in the 1990s. It was wow. uh, being worked on as Joe Jump, and then in the <laughs> mid 2000s as Reboot Ralph. No. Until eventually, uh, once John Lasseter took over as the head of Disney Animation, they picked it up again and started working on it as Wreck-It Ralph. Yeah, I think the long development cycle is kind of important for this one because the fact that it's been 30 years is so integral to this plot of this movie. Yeah. Like, I don't know if the story would have really worked if everything was shiny and new. I think the patina of nostalgia is vital to it working as well as it does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It would have felt really like, it feels fun that Ken and Ryu are like in the game <laughs> now. In the 80s, it would have been like, and look at this recent pop culture development, and they probably would have included dozens of things that like nobody remembered yeah. after the fact, and it would have just yeah. been awful. Here's the twins from Devil Dragon. Ah, God. Those here, guys. Here, hey, look at our cash grab. Yeah. <laughs> it's the ship from Galaga, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Disney has development hell 
has a pit somewhere where they throw movies, I guess, and then like drag <laughs> them up every now and then and make yeah. something award-winningly good. It's like what happens in um, in uh, uh, Inside Out. Yeah, they, yeah. Just, they just toss it into the pit, and then eventually someone falls down there and drags something out. <laughs> in this case, Rich Moore. Yes. The director, uh, who I think also did Zootopia, which is one of the other like amazing Disney movies that feels mm-hmm. like a Pixar movie. Yeah. Yeah. He was very adamant that they needed to have real video game characters in the movie, uh, like as background, which mm. I think adds to giving it a sense of that it's like uh, occupying an actual world and not just a bunch of invented stuff for a movie yeah it does feel much more grounded yeah um as a result of that he he kind of likened it to the way that looney tunes shorts will litter cultural references and like popular characters throughout them Mm -hmm. uh giving it kind of a a balance between giving the audience stuff that they find familiar but not like talking down to them Mm -hmm. yeah mind you looney tunes doing that resulted in a biblical character being (laughs) turned into an insult because nobody else remembers the bible story and everybody remembers bugs bunny calling people nimrods (laughs) (laughs) yeah and it's a pretty important bible story they just don't remember the name of the guy Mm -hmm. so uh, another interesting thing about production, uh, once they decided they wanted to use real video game characters, they just started adding them into the screenplay without worrying about whether or not they could get the rights. <laughs> <laughs> so they had like tons of them just everywhere throughout the movie. And then if they ran into problems like later when they were more actively like working on it, if they ran into problems with getting things cleared, then they would create original characters to take those places instead. Okay, that makes that sense. sense. Uh, the most frequent things I remember seeing was there's a lot of Street Fighter going on in the background of this movie, yeah. like every yep. other Street Fighter character. Yeah, there's uh, Chun Li is in this, Cammy is in this, Cammy, uh, M. Bison, Ken and Ryu, M. Bison is in the Batanon meeting. There's a lot of Street yeah. Fighter. There's also a lot of like other earlier video game characters that I might not recognize, but I'm pretty sure are real characters. Mm-hmm. And also a cameo from the model for the T-Rex from Meet the Robinsons. In, yeah. in Game Where? Central Station, in Game Central Station, uh, when he's leaving the Badenon meeting, I think, and going back to his game for the first time, a big yellow T-Rex is in the background of the shot, and it's just the T-Rex model from the movie Meet the Robinsons painted yellow. Oh, wow. I really wasn't paying attention to the background. I should have been. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's yeah. a weird little Easter egg. I guess they were running really similar programs at that point in time because it was only like I think this was almost immediately afterwards, or it was a couple films later. Because mm. uh, I think it was Smith Robinson's and then Bolt and then this, as far as the digital films. But I'm not a hundred on that. Don't quote me on it. Don't <laughs> at me. <laughs> yeah. If you have- yeah. So Mario is referenced in the movie at one point, uh, but yeah. never actually seen. And this is not because they couldn't get the rights to use Mario, which a lot of people seem to assume. John C. Riley made a joke at Comic-Con once about the licensing fee that Nintendo asked being too high, but in reality, Nintendo was actually super receptive to having more of their characters in the movie uh, and talked to the producers about 
like writing a scene in which Mario could make an appearance. Uh, but Rich Moore and the like team, as they were making the movie, couldn't figure out a way to include Mario that wouldn't completely overshadow all of the original characters. Mm. So they just decided to leave him out. I mean, the obvious place to me seems like, and I don't know if Nintendo would have been okay with this, replacing the Pac-Man cameo with Mario. But the Pac-Man cameo is so funny that I would never do that. <laughs> <It really> <laughs> Uh, uh, the weirdest cameo in this movie isn't a video game cameo. It's Skrillex. Yeah. What? Which is Skrillex, Skrillex is the DJ at Felix's party. The party in the oh penthouse. My gosh. I, since I don't really know who's, I've only no- heard the name. I wouldn't have caught that even if I had been yeah. looking for it. But wow, it's just Skrillex. He did a song for the track for the soundtrack. So like, yeah, that makes sense. I guess it makes sense. But also, what is this Skrillex video game that exists in this universe, and how can I play it? Well, my guess Maybe it's would Dance Dance Revolution. Yeah. It could oh be God, that, just... or it could be like DJ Revolution, which is a game yeah, that existed possible. for a bit. Mm-hmm. I know. I prefer the idea that the Dance Dance Revolution game, every like artist for every song also exists. So there's just like <laughs> actual realizations of every pop star, J-pop star, and K-pop star just wandering around in this universe. <laughs> they, they have to uh. perform their song every time. And you are actually controlling them <laughs> when you play the game. It's very good. Um, Even though they don't have a model that you see, they're there. Does that, does that mean you can resurrect the Beatles by plugging Beatles Rock Band into this arcade system? Probably. I think there are oh, there are Rock Band arcade games, so there's probably a Beatles version. There's Anyways. probably an arcade version of Beatles Rock Band. <laughs> this is a tangent, I think. Um, uh, other cameos that didn't make it into the movie, there was going to be a Dr. Wily cameo from Mega Man, uh, which they made, um, but it was cut for time uh, in the edit. Boo! I want more robots. I mean, he's not a robot, but he makes the robots. Uh, overall, there are about 188 individual character models in the movie because of all the cameos. That's a lot. Wow. Yeah. This one's really interesting, but in an earlier draft of the story, they were going to have Ralph and Vanellope traveling to different game worlds to collect pieces for the cart, mm. or like throughout Sugar Rush. Um, and then eventually Ralph becomes depressed and like abandons her to go to a fourth video game cabinet called Extreme Easy Living 2. No. <laughs> he basically just gets depressed and quits and goes to like a Sims kind of social game <laughs> to just like hang out. Which if it's, it seems like if this was an option, he would have taken it earlier, right? Yeah. yeah. It's described as a like hedonistic place somewhere between The Sims and the like non-objective open-world elements of Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> <laughs> Great! Wow. Um, but they didn't think that audiences would be able to like get on board with that so far through the movie, like throwing this whole different game world into it that works on essentially completely different rules so they they figured out a way to get around that i feel like if he was going to do that they would have had to replace tappers with that game to begin with yeah Yeah. they Um, also like they couldn't figure out where in the arcade a game like that would even be there were some versions of the script where it was a game on mr litwack's laptop that they traveled to (laughs) uh 
I mean, and that does even, work. It seems like anything uh, that's plugged into the system works. They'd even yeah. done some like line art sketches and some voice work for those sequences before they abandoned them. So that was like fairly like far into production that they were still planning to include that. Um, yeah, uh, they did a promotional trailer for this movie that was a mock documentary in the style of The King of Kong, <laughs> where it was about somebody like playing Wreck-It Ralph, I guess. That's one of the uh, things about the game, or about the movie that I appreciate, is that Wreck-It Ralph does feel like a game that could have existed pretty easily in that time period. Yeah. I mean, it is just kind of a Donkey Kong knockoff, but oh, yeah. the unique element of fixing everything with the hammer does make it feel like a thing that could have existed. It reminds me of a game that, when I was really little, I somehow found myself in an arcade that still existed. I don't know how it happened, but it did. And there was some game there where... I think your goal was to be like a kaiju monster and destroy a building. Like oh, that- Rampage? Maybe. Might have been Rampage. Yeah, that, that sounds like Rampage. It, so it it's kind of reminds me of that, too. Like a little mixture. Yeah, except you're fixing it. It does have yeah. It does have that. And putting Ralph as non-protagonal character is also nice. Mm-hmm. Generally mm-hmm. speaking, the protagonists of arcade games don't have any personality, and the villains kind of do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the arcade cabinet itself, like all the art and everything, is deliberately uh, designed to echo the arcade cabinets of Donkey Kong. Mm-hmm. Mm. Which were yeah. only created to make up for the fact that they didn't get the Popeye license. So really, it's a long <laughs> chain of knockoffs. <laughs> all art is stolen. <laughs> All art is stolen. Disney, give me my copyrights back. I want them. (laughs) Put it in the public domain, you cowards. They actually made a mock Wreck-It Ralph arcade cabinet to show at an E3 event as promotion for this movie. Did it? Was it an actual game or was it just the cabinet? Uh, I don't know if it was actively playable. I know that they Uh, did program a Wreck-It Ralph game. I don't think it was widely released. Hmm. Nathan's trying to figure this out by looking very closely at the photograph of the cabinet he has on Wikipedia. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it was actually real. But anyways, um, what ranking does this movie have, like quality-wise? How did people, as a as a general audience, enjoy this movie? Uh, this movie was very well liked. It was critically really well received. It has about an eighty-seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Generally, was considered to be like entertaining for kids and adults alike and had a lot of heart to it which is fair accurate yeah it won some awards didn't it yes it was nominated for the academy award and the golden globe for animated feature it won the annie award that year it was a lovely little film the best thing we've talked about on the show so far uh and uses the video game mechanics and storytelling methods to build an actually functioning film story which i think is the most important thing to take away from it as far as our podcast is concerned nominated 2012 okay it was nominated it lost lost to brave Mm. which it should have lost to paranorman (laughs) yes (laughs) instead uh brave is not better than wreck it ralph paranorman is better than both of those this is Mackenzie's hot take corner (laughs) 
You so are alone in the said corner. Final thoughts on Wreck It Ralph on this very special episode? Uh, yeah, I mean, Wreck It Ralph, it's a really well scripted, well constructed movie. The voice acting is amazing across the board. Uh, I think it does a very good job of identifying what makes video games unique and interesting and then using those elements as both narrative contrivance and as world building Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the fact that like lost levels exist as places that can be found yeah like vanellope as a glitch as something that theoretically isn't supposed to exist in the game but is somehow in there and i do feel like some of the like world building elements not necessarily the really gamey ones but accepting what are gamey elements as just part of your world did get taken in by the only good video game movie we've ever seen detective pikachu i feel like detective pikachu learned from this movie at least a teensy tiny bit and i Mm. really hope future video game movies do the same (laughs) Mm -hmm. like please i'd like one more good one well and other non-video game movies have also kind of learned that lesson. Mm-hmm. Like, we've seen a lot of movies in the past several years utilizing kind of video game mechanics as elements of narrative. Uh, most especially the idea of, like, iterative life and death cycles. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And we will talk about a few of those in a future future special episodes, I think. Let's see. Final thoughts on Wreck-It Ralph. I agree with everything that's been said. I think that the character designs are incredible. I'm really curious about multiplicity in this universe. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I it was a good movie for me. And I, if I were to rank it, if we want, do we want to do ratings or anything? Arbitrary very ratings? Ar- very <laughs> arbitrary, and especially arbitrary rating this afternoon. Okay. Um, I give it two and a half dust, uh, air, compressed air cans for cleaning the keyboard out of three <laughs> cans. <laughs> That's what's presently in front of you. Uh, <laughs> I I give it uh, a taffeta mutton fudge out of Fletcher butter. <laughs> and I will give this movie um, two Pac-Man cherry bundles out of uh, Sonic Golden Ring. <laughs> Five Sonic Rings. <laughs> Four All Pac-Man right. ghosts. Three. <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> We almost had it. We'll get it, we'll get it for our holiday special. <laughs> so, this has been another episode of Video Game the Movie, the podcast. Lexi, where can we find you? You can find me at Conwell underscore Alex on Twitter. Nathan? You can find me at Bert Nerdtram on Twitter. You can find me at Kenzie Phoenix on Twitter. The podcast's Twitter is at VGTM Podcast. Thank you all for listening. <laughs> and, uh... See ya on the flip side of the quarter. Game over. <laughs> All right. I'm bad at exits. Why do I have to do the exits? I'm bad at them. And scene. <laughs> nice. Nice.